Ladies and gentlemen, it's now time for the most popular and least listened to podcast in the world, the Sixth Sense Media Podcast, with your host, Mike Phelan. And then I don't know if you saw it, something go viral today, so my inbox has just been fucking flooded by like requests people going come come on our podcast come do this one so well what went uh what was today i've been are you talking about your tweet from yesterday i did yeah yeah so i did that that count caught on fire at like four in the morning this morning ten thousand likes holy shit (laughs) dude it's got it's got almost two million impressions that one tweet to give you perspective, the straight white male tweet from 2018 hasn't even hit 2 million impressions in three years. And that one had a lot of like celebrities tweeting, you know, fucking going in on me. Guys like Don Cheadle and a couple other people like this. This has not gotten pushed by any really big accounts. Uh, it, it had to have been. I've had stuff like this happen before where it goes viral somewhere other than Twitter. Like somebody posted it in Reddit. I had something that somebody posted in the Donald over the summer mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm not on that site at all. Yeah. So I don't, you know, I had no, I had no fucking clue that it was going crazy over there. I just knew that I was getting hits everywhere. And I was like, where's this coming from? And, uh, and then eventually somebody t- put a TikTok video up of it from the Donald. And I was like, Oh, that's where it's coming from. How do you how do you function on a daily basis with that constant threat of someone's going to try to get you fired from a job that you don't work at? <laughs> talking about the food network stuff. Yeah, that I don't know. It's like it's it's at some point you just start laughing it off because it's that you, that's what you have to do. I mean, there's it's absurd, and and a lot of people go like, you could save yourself a big headache by putting former hosts in there it's like well i could put former everything i've ever done it's like of all of your credits it's not really common thing that people put in for credits also it actually i i like leaving it in there because it shows how lazy these cancel culture people are Mm -hmm. they don't know you they don't actually follow you they're not actually like avid food network watchers because if they were they would know that show hasn't been on in three years so you know, it just proves that it's just lazy. It's like slacktivism. These people are just doing it because they have they're bored. They have nothing else to do. Mm. And they like pretending to be outraged and they like believing they have power. And so, you know, they just they literally will see a joke I make. They don't like it. And then they go right to Food Network and they go fire him. And we, we joke on my show all the time. Like the poor girl who is the intern or whatever, who handles food network, social media, like that girl has to every day be like the Josh Denny shit's happening again. (laughs) You know what I mean? So I I feel bad for whoever that probably 21 year old marketing intern is that has to do that. That's why I don't make the entertainment business. My, uh, my bread and butter job. It's not, it hasn't been at all. It's, it's a hard thing. It's a hard thing to do. Not there ain't a lot of bread and butter to go around these days, my friends. So that's that's a smart play. And I, I tried to do that in 20 in 2019. It was about a year after the canceling. I tried to, to go back to having like a, a corporate gig and doing what I was doing before I had my TV show and even getting a job from a guy that I had worked with at four other companies. Um mm-hmm 
you know, it didn't protect me from the world we live in today. I mean, they created a position. I interviewed with like five people at the company. Um, they liked me. They created a position for me that didn't exist. And uh, on day two, you know, there, there was, I don't know the whole backstory of it. I mean, I, I don't know if you saw the tweets I shared mm -hmm. yesterday, yeah. kind of recapping that story. But I don't know the whole inner workings of it. There was a girl like the position they hired me for as director of retail at Travis Matthew didn't exist. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it was kind of the position that, that my boss, the guy I had worked for at four other companies, he was in that role, but he was taking on sort of a bigger role as vice president of retail. And eventually he was going to start taking retail over for other families, other brands in the brand family. So Travis Matthew had gotten bought by Callaway, uh, they got bought by Callaway Golf, which is this mm -hmm. huge the name in golf, right? And they own a bunch of other brands, and they were they were going to start having my boss Bob uh, running retail or advising retail for some of the other brands, including Travis Matthew. And so essentially, he hired me to be his replacement um, at Travis Matthew. And you know, I'm a younger guy. Uh, thought it would be a good fit for the brand like the president of the company and I hit it off. Uh, you know, we talked, we, we talked about comedy for like most of my interview and my experience hosting a TV show and everything else. Nobody had a problem with any of that when they, when they extended the offer to me and told me to come work for them. And it was like day two. So it was like it, day two, I was fired, but it was clear that the second they announced that I actually was hired on Friday, that people, the, the women that eventually got me fired started working behind the scenes to, you know, make sure that I didn't work there. And I'm assuming, even though she wasn't the one to make the formal complaint, I'm assuming the girl who thought she was going to get the job that I got put her up to this whole thing because she followed me on all my other social media. She knew I was a comedian. She knew I had this whole career outside of working in, in corporate retail. So my gut tells me is that she was ultimately the string puller behind the entire thing of like, I, that job should be mine and fucking let's get this dude out of here. And so the, the, that woman that reported it wasn't even in my department. She didn't even work for me. And then she made the complaint like I had never even met her and she wasn't going to be one of my employees. And my boss even said that they charged like, how, how can you file a complaint against somebody you haven't met and aren't going to work for? And all of these things she's mad about are jokes he made as a comedian, which by the way, was his fucking job before we hired him. And so she took it to the HR woman who a woman, by the way, important to note, who also I think felt a certain way because they hired me without her blessing because I interviewed directly with the president. So the HR head of HR didn't really have a say on me getting the job. So I think she felt a certain way about that. And then instead of going to the, my boss, the, the vice president of retail, his boss, the president of the company and his boss, the CEO of the company, they went over all of their heads to the general counsel of Callaway, the lawyer at Callaway, who's also a woman and was like, look at all these sexist, misogynist jokes that he has on his social media. And then they took it right to the board of directors at Callaway. And they were like, and of course the board of directors is like, what, what's this guy do for us? And they're like, he just started. They're like, fuck that, get rid of him. We're not going to deal with this without any contacts, without any understanding. 
And without probably without the realization of like, this isn't some open mic dude. This is a guy who's a professional comedian who had his own television show for three seasons. Like, you know, it's like this isn't some fucking jerk off who works in the warehouse who's just got a very inappropriate Twitter account. This is a person who's been paid to do this. And that doesn't that doesn't seem to matter to them at all. And so I shared that story yesterday on Twitter, you know, to kind of highlight to people like when we talk about cancel culture, like if a guy who's a professional comedian can't get away with the excuse of I'm joking. And by the way, people pay me to joke. uh, What do you think is going to happen to you or to the next guy or to the next guy? And so basically what it proved to the women that worked at that company is if we don't like anybody, all we got to do is go find something in their social media and we can have whatever jobs we want. The, so some of the responses that I've seen to that, uh, to your story was that it, it's, it's not cancel culture, it's consequence culture. But then what, who are you ultimately affecting that you would suffer consequences from? Well, it's interesting they say that because there was consequences of your actions. Okay, well, first of all, those actions all took place weeks before I was extended the job offer and started. Mm -hmm. So why would that company not have done their due diligence and said, this is just somebody that culturally wouldn't be a good fit at the company? The reality is that was not an issue. And the reality is the person I I had worked for that, that basically hired me there, I'd worked for for four other companies. I've never had a workplace complaint about my conduct ever in over a decade of us working together. And, you know, what's amazing is one of the companies we worked together for was we used to manage Sean John's, uh, uh, Sean John stores, or I should say P Diddy's Sean John stores. Mm-hmm. So the entire workforce there was black. And I was a comedian through that entire time too. And never once did one of the black employees go to my boss. Well, he kind of jokes about race. I don't think that's okay. It's because black people have a fucking sense of humor and white bitches don't. So, you know, it's so amazing to me that like, uh, did, would you just think I was working at Sean John as a secret racist? No, I'm a comedian. And everyone that worked with me understood that all the black and Latino people that worked for me and with me at Croc shoes for the seven years or six years I was there knew that I was a comedian, knew that the things that I said, and it wasn't like, I'm not the kind of guy that would come to work and go, let me tell you about this new bit I'm working on about black people. Like I would never fucking talk about comedy at work because I'm not a moron. Um, you know, so it's like, it, it's just, it's crazy. And there's no, there was no inciting incident. There was absolutely nothing that would have led them to believe that who I am as a comedian would have ever bled into the workplace or the kind of material that I do is even any real genuine reflection of my personality. It's like what I think is funny and what I think people will find fun is not 100% aligned with my beliefs. Mm -hmm. The interesting thing is, uh, and this is the other thing I said, the interesting thing is when you do discovery for a case, um, it's their job to basically provide, choose what they provide as the reason for termination. And they literally could have provided nothing. They could have said we're at will. And we just didn't think it was appropriate for a comedian to be an executive at our company. They could have not provided any supporting evidence, but what they did provide was a bunch of anti-abortion jokes. So like one of the ones I had posted on Twitter was a picture of Negan from the walking dead with a, with the barbed wire bat 
and I and it was like check out the new head of Planned Parenthood like <laughs> clearly jokes identifying that I'm shitting on Planned Parenthood I'm shitting on abortion the the jokes they picked out were overwhelmingly jokes that had painted me as a conservative mm -hmm. um so it was interesting that they sort of told on themselves in the um, in the discovery and said, these are the jokes that we found inappropriate. It's like, you could have picked, <laughs> I gave you so much. You could have picked ones that were racial. You could have picked ones that were pre presumptuously homophobic, me making fun of gay things. They didn't pick any of that. They picked the conservative ones. So right out of the gate, I go, dude, they're making our case for us. It's obvious that this is politically motivated. It has nothing to do with me being a comedian or this being inappropriate. And, you know, sure enough, that was our case. That's what we fought. That's the angle we took. And, um, you know, the, the case got thrown out in summary judgment in December of this past year. So basically that company files a motion to the arbitrator and says, we don't think this is a case. We think we're well within our rights. And that judge has the right to go. I agree. And I'm going to throw the case out or, I disagree and we're going to go to arbitration and she agreed and threw out the case. She basically, so their, their motion for summary judgment was we think these tweets are proof that he's racist, sexist, and homophobic and shouldn't work here. And the judge went, I agree. <laughs> so it's like, it, there's legal paperwork that has me listed as a racist, sexist, homophobe. And it's like, that it's kind of crushing because I went through a, a sort of similar case back in 2013 that we actually won a settlement out of court on. Um, and it's not exactly the same. It was, you know, more of a whistleblower retaliation case where mm -hmm. uh, this was before I had done any, anything sort of famous and had any real notoriety. I was still doing stand up and stuff, but uh, I had blown the whistle on the company doing something illegal. And then they tried to use the comedy as an excuse to fire me. Mm -hmm. And so we had pretty good documentation of, you know, here's actual documentation of me discussing comedy with these people. I have dates, times, witnesses, people, places. This was never a concern for anyone that worked in the company. But literally a week after I raised the fact that they were breaking the law in a way that affected me as well, uh, that they i was i was terminated and they tried to use the the inappropriate nature of the comedy as an excuse and a scapegoat and we ended up winning a settlement with that company out of court so i had been down that road before kind of defending you know comedy in a in that environment in a legal environment and you know it's it's a sad state of affairs i mean ultimately you know being offended by something and it doesn't even make sense from a legal perspective i've talked with lawyers about this they go like Worst case scenario is like a, an employee could be offended by something you say as a comedian. The, the company, unless it's at a company function or event or it's happening on work grounds, the company assumes none of the liability of that unless they decide to. That employee would have to sue me on an individual level. They wouldn't be able to sue the company. I mean, they could try, but most lawyers wouldn't even take that case because they would go, was it at a company function? And the plaintiff would go, no. Uh, was he talking about you or talking about the workplace? No, I just don't like what he does as an individual. And they go, well, then the company you both work for has nothing to do with this. So, you know, it's not like, and they're not putting you in a position that is enabling him to make jokes at your expense or around you that would 
you know, subject you to discomfort. And by the way, it's not a crime to make somebody uncomfortable with your opinions, right? Mm -hmm. It's a crime to sexually harass somebody. It's a crime to threaten violence or to, you know, to threaten someone's safety. It's not a, a crime to share your thoughts and for someone to be bothered by them. And so that, this is this real dangerous place we're entering as a country where, you know, this whole words is violence thing that would be laughable if the courts weren't going, we see your point and we're going to start treating words like violence. Mm -hmm. uh, it was, I think it was a year, no, it was two years ago. I had done an interview with somebody uh, who was kind of part in a, it wasn't really a controversy. It was more of a, they said, they said kind of thing. Um, mm hmm I interviewed the person and after I'd interviewed her, I interviewed some other people that were part of this, this YouTube channel that was embroiled in the controversy. That woman got so pissed that she lashed out at me, but didn't do it directly, did it via proxy via her followers. And her followers started calling my nine to five job, which has nothing to oh, do, shit. which has nothing to do with this channel. It has nothing to do with the industry at all. It, my nine to five is so far removed from the industry. It's unfathomable, but my boss, yeah. who's the owner of the company calls me into his office one day and he says, I got two calls of guys with apparently speech impediments who said that you were a rape apologist, a racist and a misogynist. I was like, was it here? No, he, they said this happened on the internet. I was like, that's a pretty broad term for <laughs> accusing right. me of something. Well, I mean, you know, if, if people find out, you know, by the, the, their logic, right. I'll use like liberal logic. They find out you voted for Trump. You're automatically a racist, a homophobe, a Nazi, a white supremacist. I mean, that's all they need to know. Mm -hmm. You could literally be somebody who is like a, you could be a civil rights attorney who works every day to get, um, wrongly convicted felons, uh, people of color off of death row, right? That could be your fucking day job. And they would just go, he voted for Trump. He's obviously a racist and a white supremacist. It's like, there is no, there's no logic. There's no digging. There's no proof. And the, the hardest part of this is that people don't realize is like everything I ever do for the rest of my life and career uh, has to now go through that filter because mm -hmm. everyone's going to Google me. So like if a brand reach out, reaches out to me because they see I have a decent following and I get good engagement and they go, uh, we would like to talk to you about, you know, doing a sponsorship on one of your podcasts with our brand. I, I got to go. All right. Well, you need to spend the rest of the day Googling me and decide if you still want to do this because I don't want to sign paperwork and then have you come back and go, we just Googled you and uh, we, we can't do it now. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, and, and so every, every job I've applied for, you know, for the last two years, it's like one Google search, boom, no callback, no, you know, mm -hmm. no, no interview, no, let's set that up or anything. So it became pretty apparent pretty quickly. Like I'm all in on the stand-up comedy world, whether I want to be or not, like I'm past the point of no return. There's no going back and getting a regular job. There's no you know, there's that that's that's off the table entirely. So mm -hmm. I, I have to be my own boss and I have to figure out a way to make money at 
you know, being a comedian, being a podcaster and, you know, that shit's difficult. And it was like, kind of like I had to basically go back to college this past summer uh, on the internet and go, Mm -hmm. how do I increase my engagement? How do I increase my listenership? How do I edit video properly? How do I live stream? What equipment do I need? What, you know, I basically had to learn how to be a producer, editor, copywriter, you know, there's so many things I kind of had to learn how to do because if you're going to wear all these hats, Short of like, you know, one of the things that was very smart that Andrew Schultz did is he got a little bit of money for doing a, a sitcom on uh, CISO. I don't know if you remember CISO, but it was yeah. like NBC's comedy streaming app for a little while. And uh, Schultz did a show on there that was like a bunch of guys that play pickup hockey together. But it was kind of like the league, but guys mm-hmm. that play like rec center hockey together. And Schultz had a role on there. And I think he made about a 100 grand um, from that show. And instead of living off of it or doing anything with it, he fucking took it and invested it and said, let me go get a YouTube guy who really fucking knows YouTube. Let me get social media people who really know that. And literally took that hundred grand bet on himself, built a team, surrounded himself with people that knew how to do the things he didn't know how to do. And here we are. He's the most, he's the most successful, famous comedian on in the United States right now. It's like not even up for debate. Uh, he's an instant sellout everywhere he goes. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and, and Tim Dillon's path was a little bit different. You know, Tim, you know, Tim went on Rogan a couple times and was able to kind of build some momentum there. But uh, but you see, it can be done. You see these. are And by the way, those are the two most noticeable guys in my industry. There are dudes that reach out to me to do their podcasts. And I go, uh, yeah, I, I haven't heard of you. And then I go look them up. And these guys are making like 25 grand a month on Patreon. They have a massive fucking following and, you know, I've, I've, they, they don't really do anything in the public eye. They do their podcast and that's about it. They'll do some live mm-hmm. shows and things like that, but like, and they're really funny guys. They got a really great show and I just hadn't heard of it. So it's like people are out there fucking doing this thing. And, um, you know, it, it takes just commitment, creativity and, and follow through. And, mm-hmm. uh, I don't think those have always been my strong suits. Those are things I think I've had to work on at different times is the commitment and the follow through. And, but I don't know about how you, how you are for me, it's much easier to commit to things and follow through when I know how to do them. Right. Like I, a lot of times I'll be like, I don't really know how to do that. So I'll just kind of sit on my hands. And this summer I was like, I'm going to fucking learn how to do everything. I don't know how to do. And then I'm just going to go start doing it. And, you know, it just kind of started falling into place one thing after another. And, and now I'm on my way. Like I'm, you know, some of my bills are getting paid with my, uh, my locals community and the show that I do on there. And I'm making more money from my regular podcast with ads. And, you know, so there's, um, there's, uh, it's just, you got to kind of put your head down and just fucking go and, and realize it's going to take a couple of years before it's, it starts kind of working for itself and, mm-hmm. and affording you the opportunity to do it better and better, but you have to keep reinvesting in it too. And fortunately I was able to spend a little bit of time with some, with one of my longtime friends here in LA started his own marketing company. And while that didn't work out as a long-term employment solution, I got to spend a couple months with those guys working in the advertising and marketing world and learning that end of everything too. So learning about ad buys and media buys and, and, you know, essentially how to do that stuff. Like we sat in with experts who we brought in to kind of help pitch potential clients. And I learned a lot of invaluable information just by listening to them talk about what we would do for potential clients. So I'm sitting here going, fuck, this is like a free 
crash course in, you know, media buying and, uh, and, and internet marketing. And so um, I'm trying to utilize as much as I learned about that as well for myself and, you know, use it to kind of grow some of these things I'm doing. But, and then a lot of it is luck, man. You know, you just got to get lucky. And sometimes things you say that people resonate, uh, it resonates with people and they share it. And next thing you know, you've got, you know, a, a fucking viral explosion like I had this morning and it comes out of nowhere and you just got to try to make something out of it. So, you know, I, I, there's a lot of people like, man, this sucks. And, you know, we're sorry to hear that you lost this really good paying job, but I'm resourceful. And at least I've got some outs, you know, we, you, I don't know if you're a poker player at all, but it's mm -hmm. like, uh, you know, I, I, I still have outs. Even after that happened, I had outs and I'm, and I'm playing those outs and I'll ride it down to the fucking river. <clears throat> some people, when they're in that position, they're already drawing dead. And, uh, you know, that's, that's a much tougher situation to be in. And, you know, I, I hope we can really kind of change the way we do this in our country before those people get put in that position, because what happens to a guy when he gets canceled the way that I did, when he doesn't have comedy or he doesn't, he's not resourceful. He doesn't have other ways to go. Like, let's say this guy worked in the same kind of job for 30 years. He's only trained to do that one thing. He's got a wife and two kids in college and they depend on every dollar he makes to get by every week. And next thing you know, he's now uh, an underskilled, overaged, high salaried person in a flooded marketplace. That guy's going to fucking take a machine gun back into the office and wipe everybody out. And that's going to happen like three or four or five times at least before some legislators in this country go. Yeah, we got to keep the fucking internet away from people's jobs because mm -hmm. it's going to be it's going to end in bloodshed. It's going to end in bloodshed because you're going to make these people desperate. Well, I think unfortunately the only way for people to foolproof themselves from uh, mobs is basically just not to have a presence, unfortunately, uh -huh. which I can understand. Like, yeah, just don't just don't exercise your First <laughs> Amendment, and you'll be fine. <laughs> I mean. You have to understand when you're when you put something out there, no matter how innocuous it is, it just takes that one asshole, that one autist <laughs> with too much time, time on his hands to look at yeah. everything about you like they did with me. But the the industry I work in, it, it does the guy didn't care. My boss just told me about it, said he talked to a couple of retards, his words <laughs> on the phone right, yeah. that, that said so that you you said some mean things like I interviewed somebody, man. You know exactly what I do in my spare time. He's like, yeah. okay. I mean, if they call, they're gonna call. But you know, try 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 not to try not to have them call. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. And and also in those cases, I always tell people like, dude, give it a week. In a week, these fucking people will move on to the next thing. <laughs> you know, it happened to me, dude. The the most fucked up thing that happened with my quote unquote canceling in 2018. Uh, when all this shit first kicked off, uh, and this was after the Food Network show had ended, but uh, a lot of people didn't know that, you know, they still don't know it. But, um, mm -hmm. you know, so when when I said the straight white male thing that got everybody up in arms, basically highlighting the fact that it's totally acceptable to be racist towards white people in society today. It's not even acceptable. It's rewarded um, and lauded. Like people will give you a standing ovation for being openly racist towards white people without provocation. And it's just, you know, it's some people go, well, that's totally fair and justified. I wouldn't even argue that, but I would just say, don't pretend it's progress. Don't tell me that that's us moving the ball forward. You're just 
swinging the pendulum over to the other side. And eventually it'll swing back. And our goal should be to get it to drop to the center, right? We should have equality, not fucking your side sucks and is and we're going to dehumanize you and then swing it all the way back the other way. And go, now we're going to dehumanize you. That's not it's the eye for an eye leaves everyone blind analogy, right? So uh, when that happened in 2018, uh, literally, that was like, I think I tweeted it on a Thursday. It went viral on a Friday. And that Saturday morning was Roseanne Barr's thing. Mm. like so it was amazing that like roseanne's uh her her tweet about that woman's haircut or whatever where she said so so and so looks like planet of the apes immediately eclipsed everything that had happened to me the day before and i didn't even get to go on the publicity thing of what happened i only suffered the negativity i didn't even get to go out anywhere really and defend myself i had booked a thing on tmz that i had done um but you know it was like everybody was right on to roseanne the next day and and it was like you know a week later when i was dropped by my agency i was like dude there's like 10 other things that happened this week are you guys going to drop all of these people you know it's just it's crazy as long as people are kind of empty inside and need that validation of being morally superior i don't think we're ever going to get out of this this rut it's never going to happen well it's it's they've been granted a power they never knew they had and like we we always say or we see in movies you know absolute power corrupts absolutely and when these people feel emboldened, every single person that gets canceled emboldens these internet detectives to just take it further and keep going Mm -hmm. i mean there's a, you know, and as I talked on my podcast last night, The Darkest Hour with comedian Julia Pels, it's like at the core of this is like some severe mental illness. Like these are people that have real delusions of um, they have a real feeling of inequity in the sense of like they literally look at people who are famous or successful or wealthy or well to do. And they literally have this feeling in their mind of like, that should be me. And the fact that it isn't is an affront to me. And so when they feel that they can bring that person back down to their level, uh, it's, it comes from a place of them feeling entitled. Like, well, if you, it's sort of like the, the scorned boyfriend. If I can't have you, no one can. I mean, that's what these people on the internet are doing. If I am not famous and wealthy and successful, then how dare you? I mean, And I know this is where it comes because when I had my show on the Food Network and it was airing and we were going and filming new episodes and everything was good, there were I would get emails every fucking week from people going, you're just a fat nobody. Why do they give you a fucking show? I should have a show. And this is from another fat nobody who's in the middle of nowhere. It's like it's just amazing. And I just go, I don't know, man, if you want that for yourself, like go work at it. Uh, Yeah, I'm very lucky and I'm very appreciative, but you know, it's so amazing to me. Like if you did every person who's ever um, bitched about what I do or called me something negative or been a hater in any way, if you dig through their pre- online presence, if they have one enough, you'll find out they want to do something that I'm doing or they wanted to do something that I've done. Mm-hmm. And they're mad that I, I got to do it and they didn't. It's just that it's just that simple. It's not more complex than that. Uh <laughs> That's why I'm glad I'm not successful at this at all. <laughs> I mean, I, I honestly, I mean, I've been doing this for close to 20 years, but I, I don't want to 
I don't want to have any sort of fame. I don't want it. What I do for my nine to five gives me, I'm plenty successful there. So I can afford just to suck at this, (laughs) to totally be shitty at it, which I'm fine with because I don't get paid for it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And and it should be something you actually enjoy. I mean, you know, for me, uh, I think that's part of why it's been hard to be wildly successful at it is because in a lot of ways, I've tried to remain a little bit of a purist and go like, well, if it doesn't, if I'm not happy doing it or it doesn't bring me joy uh, to use a Marie Kondoism, not that that's my shit, but uh, if it doesn't really bring me joy to do it, I'm not going to be compelled to do it. And, you know, I'll never forget. I have a friend Tyson who, when we were in high school, like loved working on car stereos and it was like a big deal. Like this is early two thousands. Right. And uh, so like everybody was getting systems. Remember when everybody was getting systems in their car and that was a aftermarket car stereo <laughs> shit. Yeah. Subs and every sub. Everyone's putting the fucking chronic 2001 banging it, you know? Oh, listen to that motherfucker's doors vibrate. He's got horrible shit. You know, I remember that was like the high school I went to in Southern Minnesota. You'd hear a guy rumbling down the road listening to fucking uh chronic 2001 in their Chevy and, Cavalier uh, you know his trunks rattling because his fucking subs aren't you know set up correctly or uh lined correctly I obviously I wasn't the guy doing the fucking work on this stuff or into it <laughs> my friends were really into it and my my one buddy Tyson was really fucking good at it and I was like man why don't you do this like why don't you do this for a career and he goes because I enjoy this why the mm-hmm. fuck would I want to take the thing I enjoy and have to rely on it for work and make it and have to deal with customers. I don't want to deal with. Like I do this for my friends. I don't want to do this for assholes. And I was like, man, that's in hindsight. I look back on that and I go, dude, that's so that's such a healthy way to view the things that, that you do that really bring you joy is to say, like, <clears throat> if I monetize this, I might ruin it for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, I think that's good. I, I don't, I don't look at people like, oh, that guy's fucking, nobody listens to that guy's show. You might be fine with it, but you also don't have any fucking masters. You can do it however you want to do it. You can do it whenever you want to do it. And so, you know, good for you, man. I mean, it's like everything, everything doesn't have to be a fucking business or a hustle either. Like, so, you know, some people, everybody's trying to fucking, what is this? I saw the other girls selling nudes on Etsy. I mean, people, everybody's got a fucking sauce that they're selling now. It's like, mm-hmm. yo, everything and you do and you I like to cook, man. I'm not offering fucking master classes on Facebook to teach people how to make a fucking scrapple sandwich. You know what I mean? Like it's I like to cook and I and people have been like, well, you had a Food Network show. You should be doing something food related so you can recapture that audience and make a lot of money. And it's like, no, man, when I tune out and I'm just cooking in the kitchen, that's my fucking thing. Mm-hmm. That's not, I'm not trying to make money off of that. That's, that's for me. I like, that's my like quiet time. I just, go, I just check out. Sometimes I'll put music on or something, but usually I'm just alone fucking smelling smells and listening to shit cook and experimenting with different seasonings and doing what, like, it's just, that's my thing. And if I made it a job, I would fucking hate it. Mm-hmm. I, if I got paid for this, I, I definitely hate it. Um, but a lot of good things come with it. Um, since I've been doing it so long, I mean, like how many people get a random call from Netflix that they're going to fly me out to wherever for just to sit on set and interview a few people fully paid, fully catered, 
hotel, everything all covered. And all I got to do is write one article. If I don't get paid for it, I don't care. I just got a shit ton of stuff for free. It's basically a vacation for me. Yeah. <laughs> but I, yeah, totally. I, I, I kind of started to hate it at the point when I was sharing those set visits with a lot of ideologically obsessed journalists from like BuzzFeed and a few other outlets I won't name because they ruined it for me. I'm there to talk about the show. That's all I care about, the show, the experience, the production. These people were just like cramming ideology into every question. It just like brought the whole environment crashing down. Like how can third wave feminism better make this production better? Like, I don't give a fuck. Neither does anyone fucking else. No one watching the show is thinking about that at all, man. You're no. just trying to put your agenda into this content, right? It's like, I wouldn't yeah, want to read this fucking article at all. Well, it, and it makes sense if it's like part of the what makes the story compelling, right? So like I always tell people I don't like Walking Dead because I don't like I, I'm not a zombie guy. Mm -hmm. I don't like gory horror films. The Walking Dead is interesting to me because I think it covers a lot of what's horrible about us as people mm -hmm. and how it wouldn't take much for us to completely devolve to a super fucking barbaric and inhumane place. And that's what I think has been interesting about that show is because it's a it's a look at how people would be in a post-apocalyptic America, not a zombie show to me. And so I would be interested in reading an article that explores that concept, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's aligned with kind of, you know, <clears throat> at least it's somewhat married to what the show actually is. But if you there were articles that came out about the show not being diverse enough. And I was just like, who the fuck, what precedent is there for how diverse the apocalypse should be? You know what I mean? Like, if we're being honest, there would there's probably not going to be any fat people. They're not outrunning zombies. Right. <laughs> and so, you know, like there's there's also got to be some realism there, like a person with no skills or no survival ability is probably not going to be around in the apocalypse. And mm -hmm. so, you know, it's just it's a very weird and it's also. By the way, it's also an ad adapted source material. So you've got that to kind of stick to as well, right? You've got mm -hmm. some source material that you somewhat have to follow, at least until you pass by the source material, which I kind of think is where they're at now. So, yeah, you know, it's like and they've also derailed and gone a different direction than the source material so much. that It's like it's it's its own thing now. And it's this is the last season. They're going to be done with it anyway. So, um, you know, I just think. I, it, that that to me, what you're describing just ruins shows for me because then it, I can't watch it without thinking about what that person wrote about it. And if I don't like it or I don't agree with it, it just can ruin a show for me. Like, uh, even if it's positive, even if they're like, the thing I like the most about the Queen's Gambit and how, is how it disassembles the patriarchy. And I'm like, oh God, if this is what people think this show is now, I can't even fucking enjoy it because it's, You've you've bastardized what it could be. It just cover cover what is there. That's uh, uh, maybe I'm just I'm really old yeah. fashioned when it comes to writing articles for genre sites. It's just uh, here's what I experienced. Here's what it was. Do you care about social politics? Well, sorry, I'm not covering that. I'm covering exactly what I, I saw. Awesome ass shit. Let me tell you about it. Not what the writer thought about some blue check marks remarks about trump 
which yeah that shit came up too for some reason I, exactly exactly <laughs> yeah isn't it funny how trump got just got sh- gets shoehorned into everything what was the one oh the one recently was how the GameStop and the uh basically how that whole that stock play was was white supremacy trump uh, maga in action and it was just like what yep. the fuck are you talking about it's just, throwing... just they tried to say that it was like you know it's like they're basically trying to say these are trump people and they're domestic terrorists and that's why they're trying to upset the american economy through the stock market it's like no man you know you could probably say that those people were more influenced by fight club than donald trump mm-hmm. and saying we found this interesting way that we can upset the financial apple cart in this country and take a lot of money make a lot of money whilst taking it away from powerful people they're literally betting on companies failing. Mm-hmm. I mean, so you're telling me that somebody found a way to fuck over the bad guys and they're the bad guys. Explain that to me. And then all the transparency melts away where we see that they go to protect the bad guys after that. Yeah, like, oh, we like, got to change the rules. Now that the normal man's doing yeah, it. Yeah, Now <laughs> that the bad guys are, are losing, we got to protect them. And you're just like, Oh no, the government's the bad guys too. I mean, most of us knew that, but it's like, you know, it's uh, it's funny. I had a uh, did a podcast yesterday where we just kind of talked about, you know, the guys that were hosting the show. were like, how do we get out of this? And I was like, war. <laughs> I mean, it's like it's the only real answer. And everything we did came back to that. And I was just like, you know, the, the problem is there are so many instances in my mind. That's one of them where you just look around at the American people and go, you know, if we were ever going to, you know, revolt, it should be because of this. You know, and I, I used two examples. I was like, when the government stepped in and interfered with the free market being uh, manipulated by the everyday man, and they stepped in to protect hedge funds against fairness and fair play, that should have been a moment where we just went, oh, the government's actually racketeering and conspiring against the American people. Okay, now they need to be removed from power. The other one was when that it got leaked that the stimulus bill had like $700 million allocated for like Pakistan g- gender studies or some shit. It's like, if you aren't storming the Capitol for that, then what the fuck would we ever do it for? The fact that everyone in this country isn't a millionaire before we spend a dollar on nonsense like that for another country. What the fuck are we doing? What are we doing? Like your tax money shouldn't be going to that. Nobody's tax money should be going to that. I've got, you know, five to 10,000 people that are living in abject third world poverty, seven, eight miles from where I live in Skid Row. Mm -hmm. And we're sending $700 million to the fucking Middle East so that the girls there can figure out how to be girls. And if that, what the fuck are we doing, man? What are we doing? You know, I drove drove through Skid Row. You look at... I drove through Skid Row in 2018 and saw how horrible it was. I can only imagine how much worse it's gotten. Yeah, my my um my girlfriend does stuff with a charity down there every year. And it's gotten she's done it since 2013. It's gotten exponentially worse every year. But that's not what we should focus on for some reason. Helping those that need help. Uh, this comes from all sides of, of politics, left and right. There's just that mm-hmm. that dismissal of people with mental illness and the the poor, the incredibly poor. They have absolutely nothing poor. 
they're just dismissed because the problem is well big but there's no need for them to fix it because what are those people ever going to do for a politician ever yeah the um the that's that's absolutely crazy to me the uh you know the worst part of um the worst part of it is regardless of where you fall philosophically on like well they should strip you know pick themselves up by their bootstraps whatever blah 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 it's like yeah but with the alternative is to spend it on gender studies in pakistan like even if you took that 700 million and got the homeless off the street just so that people didn't have to fucking look at it that would be fine like that's my point if there's so much goddamn money uh that we're giving it away to other countries for nonsensical research uh yeah i don't care if you philosophically don't agree with it just fucking do it just give them the money 700 million dollars would probably fix the entire homelessness problem for three years in this country or in the state i'm sorry in the state so it's like what are we doing like the fact and I've said this for a long time about universal health care. It's one of the things that I is, is not a very libertarian point of view that I have. But my thing is like, number one, with the shit we spend money on this country, it's a luxury we should easily be able to afford in the United States. We spend so much money on so much dumb shit. There's no reason we can't just have universally free health care in this country. And I'm not saying we should. And I'm not saying people are owed it. I'm saying we can, so why the fuck not, right? And uh, and then what I'll say to that is, I don't want it to be from a restrictive perspective. Like, I don't want universal health care with the caveat that the government's now going to tell you what to eat, how many times a, day, a week to work out. Like, not at the expense of freedom and liberty. But this idea of, like, this is the other thing I would argue. We have no idea how productive a society we could be if people didn't have to worry about their health at all. Imagine how much more productive every entrepreneur would be or every factory worker would be or every teacher would be or everyone in their job if they just didn't even have to worry about, oh my God, what if I get sick? What if you took that stress off of the American people entirely? What would we be capable of? Would we be more productive? Would we all make more money? Would we end up paying more taxes? Would we end up spending any more money on healthcare than we already do? Probably not. Because I would argue that the, the lack of stress around your healthcare uh, would actually make you a far more productive, profitable, prosperous nation. And we would outrun whatever we spent on healthcare in 10 years. Because in 10 years, people would be stress-free, happy, healthy. They wouldn't have to fucking worry. And yeah, there are going to be people that are going to do all the fucking heroin and suck time and resources out of the system. And that sucks. But they're already doing that, man. Mm -hmm. They're already doing that. You go to the hospital with a heart attack, you're going to wait behind the girl who OD'd on heroin before you. That's just the priority list. And it sucks. But that's that's not a problem that doesn't exist today without free health care. So you know, it just it blows my mind that we would spend and this is where the left loses everybody is because they should be the ones coming out and going, why the fuck are we spending money overseas when we don't have universal health care yet? We want that. We campaign on that. We tell the American people they deserve it. But we would rather we would also rather spend money on gender studies in Pakistan than fucking take care of our people and give them universal health care. So it's like you, the, the liberals aren't there either.
dude. It's like, uh, it's just, we, we have a really fucked up set of priorities in this country politically, and it doesn't align with the needs of the American people. And it's a shame. And, and the American people should be furious about it. I think where the left kind of lose, it lost my support years ago when I went from being a progressive to just walking away from the Democratic Party altogether, was the fights they choose are fights that will never have any tangible results. You could mm-hmm. say you want equity, which you, you simply cannot achieve. Not everyone is going to be on the same level at all times. It's never people also don't happen. people also don't want the same things. Right. You can't. Oh, so that's impossible. Yeah, you can't dictate the outcome for every person and have it match every other person. It it won't happen. And that also yeah. leads into the case with the poor. There's some homeless people that love being homeless. I've seen uh, social experiments done here in the southern state that I live in, where a homeless man is given a place to live, a steady job, and a stipend. Within six months, he he didn't show up to the job anymore. He left the apartment, and he was just living with his homeless friends because he had no rules. He didn't it's like to. instant being institutionalized. Right there, there was nothing. There was nothing for him in a stable lifestyle like that. But everything that he loved was just with his homeless encampment. Which, if that's what they're going to do, you can't stop them unfortunately yeah and 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 nor should you i mean that should also be his freedom like it should be your freedom to live in squalor if that's what you want but you know there it's poor by the way my 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 mom's side of the family are from michigan i mean that's Mm -hmm. they're basically those people so you know they they live very you know they live very um check to check and you know with far less than most of the other people i've met my entire life and you know i don't think that they're they're not people that wake up every day miserable and hating their lives. That's their life and they love it. And, you know, that's for a lot of them, it's all they've ever known. So, you know, who are you to tell them you need to make more money and you need to live a better life? That's for them to decide. That that weird fetish for authoritarianism, just it never sat well with me. I, I like not ever having to be um, reliant on the government for anything. Mm-hmm. The, the one short stint when I was unemployed, when the recession happened, it was, I was miserable for nine months because yeah. I had to rely on the government to give me money. But then as soon as I got a job, I was like, no, never, never again will I want to be in that position. But the mm-hmm. people are so afraid of that unknown that they just, they can't seem to survive without knowing that there's always a safety net there. Instead of making one for one for themselves, they're going to always yeah. depend on someone else because either they don't have the ambition to or whatever, but it's, uh, it, or it's the knowledge or, or just the, or just the knowledge, the education of how to do it. Right. Like I talked about, you know, part of the reason I'm it's held me back in my career as an entertainer is the things I don't know. And mm-hmm. there's a lot of people that that's what holds them back in life in general. They're, they don't know how to do certain things. I mean, you always hear those stories about like, I didn't even know how to balance a checkbook until oh, I Jesus met my husband. It's like 35. <laughs> and it's like, but those are, those are real people, man. There are people mm-hmm. out there. Like if you watch reality TV at all, I just watched a show like 90 day fiance. There's like a 20, 28 year old kid. who's like, I've never been on an airplane. It's like, Holy fuck, man. I was on an airplane when I was like 13 years old. Mm-hmm. And some people thought that was too long. Like there, there are people like I've been flying since I was a baby. So, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> 
it's it is interesting to me that um you know it's uh the I, i'm not down with anybody who thinks it's their responsibility to tell other people how to live or what's mm -hmm. funny or what's acceptable or what's okay or what they should be doing it's like you know and i guarantee if you peered into these people's lives who are telling everybody else what to do who they are who they should be uh, these people don't have a handle on their own lives for shit. Oh, I, I can tell you that firsthand Bad. from the like the set visits I've been on when I'm with other journalists. I don't tell them my political affiliation. It's not their business. No, but I know as soon as I do be on your way home very quickly, they would they would have a shit fit, even though it, how I vote does not represent who I am as a person. But they just can't let that go. But I'm, I'm sitting there at, the, at a bar with one of them. And they're just railing against Southern people and railing against the NRA and, you know, stupid rednecks and everything. I'm sitting there like, I am a Florida redneck. I was born and raised in Florida. I, yeah. also, I also have a college education. I have a BA. Uh, I have a very successful career outside of this. I mean, like, where are you getting that information from? It's just like I, this West Coast, not, no offense, but West Coast assholes. Well, I'm not from... <laughs> Yeah, I'm not from I'm not from here, so I don't align myself. Right, with but that, so it's a, it's that weird it. mentality, that superiority complex of everyone that lives in the South is just stupid and dumb and a redneck. I'm like, well, people I know in the construction industry are some of the most happy, wealthy motherfuckers in the world, and all they did was just work and had maybe a GED, maybe a high school diploma, but you know they knew that the only way they were going to survive is by starting their own company or working their asses off in a trade. And how dare you say that they're lesser yeah, listen, than you because they voted Republican. I'll tell you, <laughs> I'll tell you what, man, my brother, my older brother, Craig has been a contractor his entire life. He, was, yeah, he had some odd jobs when he was a young guy. He's 13 years older than me. He just turned uh, He turns 50. No, he just turned 50 last year. All right. I've been an executive for companies. I've had my own TV show. I've been a traveling comedian. I've never had the kind of disposable income at any point in my life that he's had at different points in his ever. And so I, I don't look down on people in the trades at all. Most of the people I know in the trades have more money than I've ever fucking had. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's just uh, for me, you know, it's, it's weird to say it's like, cause sometimes some people I think look at the kind of jobs I've done and they're like, Oh, those are all like elitist white collar jobs. It's like, no, I've, I've always just kind of done what I felt like I was good at. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and I, and I did construction with my brother when I was a teenager and I was not good at it and I hated it. And it did not, it did not suit me at all. Um, but he's very good at it and you know, he enjoys it and he's a fucking people guy and, uh, people like, him and they and you know they like shooting the shit with him they like hiring him to build shit for them and renovate their houses and so you know uh um never once a day in my life did any of my other family seem like miserable people who hated being condescending towards those people always seem like miserable people that hate their existence no matter what school they went to no matter how much money they have or any of those things they're clearly people that are just aren't happy i i just can't understand the elitism just <laughs> at all it, it it always sat weird with me which is kind of why my the personality that i give off on twitter and social media is is of an asshole with absolutely no regard for anything because honestly I don't care what I say online. You can get pissed. You can go to my editor. 
you could write her an email and say, I don't like what he said. If she decides no longer to publish my work, okay, that's fine. I wasn't getting paid anyway. Well, you're not going to stop me from living my life. You're not going to ruin it. If you try to, yeah. <laughs> if you if you try contacting my nine to five and try to get me fired from there, I'll I'll do something about it. <laughs> I'm not afraid right. to. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna sit there and go, oh, oh, the Twitter mob got me fired from my job. Oh, I, I guess I'll just slink back into nothing. Hell no, I'm gonna fucking fight you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so, and, and more and more people have to take that attitude, right? They've got mm-hmm. to have that attitude of like, yeah, I'm not just going to sit back and take this shit. Um, I'll do something about it. I'll make sure that, it, you know, that if I can at least redeem myself or, or save my, my job or whatever, that I, I make enough of a dent to try to make it easier for the next guy. And that's all I try to do. You know, even in the case I lost, it's like, the more and more people like me fight these things and the more and more it costs, cause it still costs that company probably a million dollars to defend themselves in this suit. Mm-hmm. Like the good thing is I, my lawyer took my case on contingency, meaning if we get paid, he gets paid. If we don't win, he doesn't get anything. Mm-hmm. They have to spend money to defend themselves. So even if like, this is what's so fucking ridiculous. I guarantee you in almost two years of litigation, they paid the lawyers more than what they would have just paid if they just paid me my fucking salary for two years. So it's just like, it's, it's unbelievable to me. And the only way we get this to change is if we make it ungodly expensive for these fucking companies, that's the only way. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can do that without winning. I mean, like I said, they probably spent half a million to a million dollars defending themselves in this lawsuit. Good. Fuck them. Right. Like, it's that simple. Fuck them. Uh, you know, if they want to, if these places want a big brother, everybody, and they want to govern what you do outside of the workplace, then it should be very expensive for them to make those kinds of hiring and firing decisions. Absolutely. And uh, good. I'm, I'm glad. It, I'm glad it cost them a lot of money that they didn't have to spend. They also, they, they could have kept me in that role and they would have been very successful and they would have made a lot of money and everybody would have been happy except for one uptight cunt without a sense of humor and she would have quit and she would have gone on to whatever fucking feminist utopia company she was going to invent or find whatever the fuck that was but this is what bothers me what bothers me the most about it is when when this happened the the president and the ceo and and my friend of many years who was the director of ops who hired me when he became sort of the vp of retail He's like, you know, I talked to the president and the VP of the or the CEO of the company. And they're like, what is happening? Like, this, this isn't our company. This isn't our DNA. We don't have tattletales that work for us that can't take a fucking joke. Well, the reality is you do. And now she's protected because, you know, you can't retaliate against somebody for, mm-hmm. you know, ratting on somebody like me. She's essentially protected forever. But I guarantee you this. I bet people aren't nice to her. I bet she's not happy working there anyway. Like that nobody wins in that situation. And these dumb cunts don't realize like, do you think your job's going to be fucking fun when you out yourself as that humorless twat that now works in that department that everyone's got to walk on eggshells around for the rest. You're going to hate it too. You're going to hate it too. And you're going to quit anyway, which she probably did. Or they laid her off with COVID 
And she's like, I got laid off because of COVID. And they're like, no, you got laid off because fuck you. We don't want you here. <laughs> what worries sure, me, COVID. What worries me is that kind of, when, when that line of attack is successful once, it, how much does it embolden someone to take the next step for the next person they don't like? When they gradually increase the, the whatever the violation was, I mean, right. <laughs> eventually that company well, is going to end up in a big hole because of either uh, uh, libel or slander. Right. And so, and here's the, un, the, here's the unintended consequence. Again, you dumb bitch. You didn't hurt me alone. You hurted the woman I've been with for a decade who relies on me to provide for us. So you took money and food out of another woman's mouth that you don't even fucking know. You hurt another woman because you can't take a fucking joke. You ruined another woman's life for two years that you've never met because fuck if somebody does something you don't like right mm -hmm. it's like you know these people don't stop and think it through like what a miserable fucking person you have to be to behave this way and you know it's like it's so funny in the in the in the whole process of this they're like it's clear you hate women and dude it took everything in my power in the deposition to go, you know, I didn't before this, but I fucking really do now. I really do. I, I, I tell you, I didn't, I didn't really care for y'all before, but I fucking detest you as a species. Now I sure do. If it weren't for my girlfriend, man, I'd be so fucking gay. <laughs> I'd be Just down in those spikes everywhere. <laughs> Just out of fucking spite, be a spite fag. I would be, I would do it to just fuck you. Fuck any of you who ever wanted me. I'm going to have fucking sex with guys now. <laughs> I would be the first, I probably not the first spite fag, but I'd be the most out and proud about it. I don't even like men, but I, I hate women. So I'll fuck men to get back at women, you know, like lesbians. <laughs> uh, now you're going to get canceled over this one too. <laughs> One of my best rants in months. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure my. Oh, I'm sure my boss will get another phone call. You, you had a guy on about this one. Yeah. You said a bad word yeah, about you gay go, that people. Guy's a, that, hey, that guy's a. That guy's a home. Yeah, I'm sorry. Are you mad that a, a man came out on my show? <laughs> don't you dare! Don't. So they're gonna cancel me for finally revealing my true self as a homosexual? Don't you know? The gay. The gays ignore are no the, longer. Ignore the spiteful motivation. The gays are no longer safe from the outrage mob. They're, they're on the lowest See level that? of the totem pole now, it seems, even though they're the ones that have suffered the most. I mean, in the 80s. I literally wrote on my, I, I literally just wrote on my joke note. I have shows at the end of the month, but I literally just wrote spite fag on my joke notes next to the desk. Don't got to work on that bit. In the 80s and uh, 90s, yeah. just like railing on gay guys and just making fun of their sexuality and their plight was perfectly normal from Kennison to fucking every other stand-up comedian. Not Dude, a problem. And, and gay, guys did, gay guys did it to each other. Yeah, all the time. Yeah, there was all no the time. There, there was no problem with, with just throwing them under the bus. Uh, well, I think you and I, Mike, went back and forth on... Um, on uh, one thread of mine that was me saying like isn't it interesting that a lot of these people that are supposedly against uh the concept of joking about other races or people with sexual orientations or ethnicities or whatever 
they go, well, you can't make fun of those people because it's punching down. And I think you had some good comments on that thread, right? Where it was like, how do you automatically assume somebody that's a different ethnicity than you would be punching down? Or that somebody who's gay is, is a joke that's punching down. The only way you would think that is if you yourself view you above those people. Mm-hmm. So if your default is you can't make fun of black people, that's punching down. You're a fucking white supremacist, dog. Hate to tell you, but if you think all jokes about black people or Mexican people is punching down, you are a white supremacist. I think it's punching across because I don't think I'm better than people. Uh, and that includes the tards and the gays. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> it's that weird. So that's what I'm saying is like, you know, everybody superiority. Is, if everybody's on equal footing, then everybody is equally. Yeah. Everybody's open to be made fun of. Yeah. I don't, I have absolutely comedy should never be held down by someone's sensibilities. Like I've, I've said it so many fucking times, your sensibilities are your fucking problem. Yeah. Someone could say something that could offend me because of whatever my past experiences are, but I'm not going to fucking try to ruin them. I'm just going to go, ah, I didn't think it was that funny and move on. Yeah, not, I'm not going to be for me. perpetually hurt. I don't need to be a victim to feel like I'm fulfilled. <laughs> Dude, I see, listen, by the way, like I see jokes from comedians that are way more famous than me and way more successful every day that I don't agree with or that I just downright think suck. I don't even comment. It's like, keep it fucking moving. It doesn't matter to me. It's not let the, obviously they're having success. Let, let I don't, they don't need me as a fan to, for them to do what they're doing. And I don't need anyone as a fan to do what I want to do. If I think a joke is funny, I'm going to put it out. I'll tweet it. I'll put it in my act. I'll do whatever I want to do. If I think something's funny, I'm going to do it. I didn't do this to please other people. Like I didn't become a comedian to satiate the fucking intellectualism of other people. I did it because the idea that I could just put my thoughts out somewhere and make people laugh was exciting to me. Mm-hmm. That's a, it was a cool trick. Like I, I had this conversation with my mom last night, we were talking about comedy and it was like, I never set out to be a comedian thinking I could be Chris rock or I could be a Jerry Seinfeld. Or I could be, I never thought of that for me. The only benchmark as a comedian was, can I even do it? I was always a guy that was like funny in my group of friends. I would make off the cuff remarks. I would ball bust and people would laugh, but it's a whole different ball game of going, can I actually organize thoughts and take them to stage and make strangers laugh at them? Uh, you know, like based on the merit of the, of whether or not the thing is funny or not. And the second I realized I could do that, man, to me, that was the finish line. It's like, either you can do it or you can't. And so that to me is special enough that I don't get caught up in that. Well, I'm here and this comic is here and then I need to get to here or I need, it's like, we're all running our own race. We're all different. We're all doing Mm -hmm. our own thing. Nobody can be me and I can't be anybody else. And so, you know, if you can't be a comedian or an entertainer and be happy and content with the propriety that is you, you're going to be chasing something your entire life and career that you'll never catch. I think uh, stand-up comedians are probably the best people to estimate what will land where and when. Because you're, you're set. Uh, I know a couple traveling stand-up comedians that have had to do the South, like Florida, Georgia, uh, New Orleans. And just th- their routine will, will land great in some place like fucking Orlando. But then they'll go up to some bumfuck 
town in Atlanta and they'll completely bomb everything. Just bomb, 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 bomb. They'll go two town, two towns over. Everything's fucking yeah. great. Everything's fantastic. You can't dictate comedy th- that's going to be universally funny. It ain't going to happen. I don't know why the fuck my uncle likes. Well, you 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 Big sort Bang of theory. I don't get it. <laughs> well, yeah, and you, you sort of can. You can like there are those guys that I, I call them train killers. There are those road comics that can kill everywhere. But the question is, did you get into comedy to kill everywhere? Or did you get into comedy to be yourself and for to try to find people that like that? And so I would become a trained killer and learn how to murder everywhere. Because the funny thing is, those guys, and I could name some names right now, but I don't think anybody really knows them outside of the world of comedy. But those guys who are road killers and they're trained killers and, and clubs love them, but they're not memorable. Like, nobody fucking remembers people. Nobody follows them anywhere nobody fucking i would rather go to a fucking show and make one real fan and bomb than crush and have nobody fucking care who i was the next day because one is like masturbatory like yeah okay cool you crushed nobody cares about you and you can't build anything off of that but if i go to a place and i do me and I connect with one person, even if I eat shit, that guy's going to stay with me. And then mm-hmm. eventually when I come back, he's going to bring friends and they're going to stay with me. And then they're going to bring, you know what I mean? And you can actually build something where people are with you for what you do, not because you're just a fucking, you know, a, a, a name and a slot and you can execute killing. Like it's not hard to kill. You know, stage uh, stage magician, like comedy magicians, are those kind of guys that always kill because always it's kind of a but but it's so generic too. It's always the same ten tricks with a one liner, and you're like, you can interchange the one liners. Just learn a fucking card trick, and you can do this. Well, and you know the the one that always comes to mind for me, where comics that always killed were like insult comics, people like Lisa Lampanelli or people Mm -hmm. like Don Rickles or whatever. And they always had their stock go-tos about uh, gay guys or black people or uh, different ethnicities mm-hmm. or whatever, right? But where the real magic came in with a Don Rickles or a Lisa Lampanelli is when you watch them be able to drill into the specificity of somebody live, like they would be able to roast somebody based off of who they were sitting in that chair at that moment. And that is a real talent. Like that's different. And that's why I think the Rickles and the Lampanelli's are the memorable insult comics, but you don't know this. There are hundreds of other guys who tried to be Don Rickles and Lisa Lampanelli, Mm -hmm. other insult comedians that you don't remember or you never heard about because they only had the stock. Oh, Pollocks, Italian, they cut me off. That's all they had was this sort of stock insult kind of material. They didn't have the ability to really cut somebody deep and comedy almost got.
<laughs> Sorry about that. It looks like it went out. For Are a you second. there? Yeah, yeah, I'm here. That's all right. Yeah, it happens. No, but I was saying, um, you know, uh, insult comedy basically got replaced about 10 years ago by roasting, mm -hmm. you know, and then that sort of took over the world of like insult comedy. But I remember when I first started, you know, almost 15 years ago now, there were roast comics that did the road. Guys who would literally just insult people in the audience and they didn't all have the finesse and the improvisational abilities of a Don Rickles and a Lisa Lampanelli. They was just mm -hmm. some stock shit. And they often, and they often killed, you know, they often killed, uh, but they weren't memorable. I couldn't even, uh, most of those guys couldn't even tell you their names. Uh, I honestly can't remember. I can't even remember the last stand-up comic I saw. <laughs> That's how unmemorable it was. Um, but yeah, I, I honestly can't, I, I can't name a recent comic at all that I, I could remember that I didn't want to see if they came to town that wasn't like, well, most of the ones I like are all dead. <laughs> They're all dead. Yeah. That's, yeah. but yeah, isn't that unfortunate? But that may just be yeah, me. Yeah, most just, of the real timeless ones are, are all dead now. Yeah, it, it may just be that I just haven't, haven't consumed enough of, of the medium to, to know any names. I mean, it's, Josh Denny does not come to mind when I think stand-up comedy. That's not because you're not good at what you do. It's just because I don't expose myself to it enough to know. I don't even remember how how we came together on Twitter. Yeah. I, I don't remember at all how this... Nor should it. <laughs> I don't know how this came together at all. So I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't know about you unless I had accidentally... Don't know how it started. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And I, and I think that's a lot. I mean, I think that's a lot of comedians, you know, I think, um, you know, it's, it's interesting how, um, how people come to find out about certain comics. Or, I mean, obviously podcasting is a big part of it. Social media is a big part of it. I mean, social has been a much bigger part of it for me than anything else, because I think that's where I've spent the most time uh, building a fan base. And, you know, there is, I, I think, despite what some of my critics would tell you, I think the way I do comedy is conducive to social media, right? Because I like mm -hmm. to write a lot of material that uses people's stupidity and assumptions against them. And there's no better arena for that than social media because people are very quick to just jump at things with stupidity and assumption. And, uh, you know, uh, it's just, it's a good marketplace for the kind of stuff I peddle. Let's just say that. You could be extremely lazy about it and just, just clip just random tweets and random social media posts and just display them on a wall and just point to them for an hour. And you can make a whole bit about that, but yeah. you need, you need a bit of a, you need some soul behind it to make it something worthwhile. Cause I could just sit and look at fucking stupid shit all day, but you need a comic there to emphasize certain parts of it or just put that spin on it that maybe you're not looking at it the right way. But <laughs> I, I don't know. I'm not a comic. I'm not, I'm not a good writer. I'm not even a good fucking host. I'm just, I'm just a guy well, with a fucking camera. <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, it's um, <clears throat> what I'll say is it's not necessarily like, Oh, you know, you're, it's about being a good writer or any of that stuff. It's just, it's all your point of view. And I just, I, my whole life, I found that like, I, the first thing I notice about a scenario is usually not the first thing everybody else notices. Mm -hmm. And so every, every 
everything I write from comes from that. Just, what do I see? I don't think other people see. And I place, and sometimes it's good. And sometimes it's the honest place I can write from is like, what was my worst thought or first thought? Usually it is also my worst thought about it. And, you know, there's something fun about sharing those with people when other people won't necessarily do that. Uh, that's, <laughs> I'm going to have to wrap it up, but something I usually ask at the end of my interviews is what kind of advice would you give to people that are trying to break into your industry with, and usually I don't, I, I usually, I rarely ever have a comedian on. So this is a pretty good uh, time to ask this, but how people that are looking to get into the, into the comedy circuit now, especially with the way things are with COVID, what would be your advice to those people? Learn the internet. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a pretty broad <laughs> statement, but I mean, like, you know, and don't listen like old guys from my generation and further are going to be like, YouTube isn't comedy. TikTok isn't comedy. Fuck that. If you can figure out how to be funny and build a following on one of those platforms, do it. Boy, do I wish I didn't listen to those old crotches when YouTube came out in 2006, because I had friends that like jumped on YouTube right away and started making a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And I was I listened to the old heads who were like, that's not comedy. You got to get up and do it in front of the people. And I went, yeah, that sounds right. You're you're you know, you're doing the chuckle hut for six nights for a thousand bucks. You should I should be listening to you, you know, so uh don't listen to old people tell you oh, this isn't real comedy fucking back in my day we did one-nighters in titty bars for 86 dollars and that's comedy don't listen to those fucking guys get on tiktok shake your dick get on OnlyFans, shake your dick out do whatever you got to do build a fan base do it however it makes you happy <clears throat> do whatever you like to do and listen, the only thing you'll ever have uh, the market cornered on is yourself. The only thing you, that's proprietary about you is you. So find a way to do comedy as you do it wherever people will let you do it and listen and participate. And that's it. That's the only advice I could give people. And by the way, and if it doesn't bring you any joy, don't fucking do it because it's not, it's going to take a long, the best advice I ever got. I got the first night I thought about really doing stand up. It always something I toyed with in my mind. I went to see Dave Attell, Sean Rouse and Al Jackson in uh, West Palm Beach, Florida at an improv. I was working for Crocs, me and a dude I worked with. We finished a long week of work and there just so happened to be an improv comedy club uh, across from where we had dinner that night. I was like, yo, let's go see a stand up show. And it was just so happened to be Dave Attell. And I knew him from Insomniac. I knew his stand up. I was like, this guy's fucking great. Let's go see him. And he and absolutely did not disappoint. He murdered. Um, and after the show, I was sitting at the bar talking with him and the other comics. And I was like, you know, my friends say I'm funny. I just I was a, in bands for many years and just stopped doing music for a while. It was kind of like, what's going to be my thing now? I was a little lost. And I, I was like, you know, everybody says I should do stand up. Like, what advice would you have for me? And Sean Rouse's advice was, you know, just don't steal anybody's material. Uh, because at the time, 2006, when Dane Cook was out, that was a big that was the big controversy in comedy was him and Louis C.K. and who's stealing jokes from who and the Carlos Mencia thing with Joe Rogan at the store just happened. So that was like the hot buzz at the moment was people stealing other people's jokes. Um, and then Attell said something very, very, you know, uh, very, very deep and astute to me. And he said, listen, uh, 
go do stand up. And then after you do it for the first time, assume that nobody will give a fuck about it for 20 years. Assume that it will take 20 years for you to get your first actual fan. And if you still want to do it, then do it every day for the next 20 years and, and you'll get good at it. And you, 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 you know, it'll make you a very happy person. Um, and if not, it's not for you. If, if, if not getting, if you don't get, like, if you need the validation to enjoy it, quit now basically was what he said. Like, if you need the validation and the adoration to enjoy doing this, you, it's going to be a lonely fucking long haul and you should probably not do it. And, um, I was lucky enough. I got to run into Dave Attell in New York uh, many years later when I was starting my show for food network, because their offices are in New York too. And I went to the cellar and Attell happened to be there. And I, I went up to him and like reminded him like, Hey, I don't know if you remember me, but I met you in West Palm beach like 10 years ago. And the guy that I was with made a real fucking spectacle of himself, got real shit faced, <laughs> was like bought, putting, putting drinks for the whole bar on our company card you know, so the, we were memorable because of him, not because of me. And David remembered. And I go, do you, do you have any idea what you told me about starting comedy that night? And he was like, no, I I'm not at all. I don't remember at all. And I, I reminded him, I told him what he said. And we talked a little bit about Sean Rouse because Sean had passed away. And, you know, we reminisced about him a little bit. And he, he was a fucking brilliant comic in his own right. And I got to know him better in Los Angeles because he lived here and did the local scene in LA when I first moved here. So I would see him at open mics and stuff and was like, Oh my God, dude, this is amazing. We're doing shows together. And you're the reason you're the reason I started doing standup, you know, six years ago or whatever. And we reminisced about Sean for a little bit. And then I, you know, Dave's like, well, how's it going, man? Where are you at in your career? And I go, I'm actually out here, you know, getting set up for my first TV show and, you know, continuing to do standup and, you know, and, I, and he's like, how many years are you in now? It's like 10 years. He's like, man, this is crazy. You're doing these, these good things 10 years in. And I looked at him and I just said, yeah, man, 10 more to go. And maybe they'll give a shit. And he was like, you know, he, you could tell it, like it, it meant something to him that that meant something to me it was like mm -hmm. a guy like, and I look at a guy like a tell it, it's a cruel business, I guess is what I'm saying is like, it's such a cruel business because David tell is arguably the most brilliant person to ever hold a microphone in terms of his ability off the cuff his sharpness his writing he's the most complete comic that's ever lived and it took him 21 years to get his first hour special from hbo which was captain miserable and i messaged him on myspace when it when it got announced i was like about fucking time um and long overdue and I, yeah that's how long ago this was that i was chatting with Attell on myspace but it's like if a guy that fucking brilliant can basically be very much under the mainstream radar for 30 years, you know, you better love it. You better love it because not everybody who's incredible gets wildly rich and famous. And, um, you know, so that, that by far is the best advice anyone has ever given me. And if I can pass that on to anybody else, I definitely will is because you have to accept the fact that you could be very, very good at this and love it to death. And it still might not make you wildly rich and famous. So you better fucking love it. You've been listening to the Six Sense Media Podcast. You can find more of our celebrity interviews and roundtable discussions on iTunes, Podbean, and SoundCloud. Be sure to check out our movie, TV, and video game coverage at SixthSense.com and FanBolt.com.